Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 384. It's titled, Has a Commodities Bull Market Super Cycle Started? If so, how do you invest in it? In the early to mid-2000s, we had a lot of discussions within our research group at the investment advisory firm, Fund Evaluation Group, where I was a partner. One of those ongoing discussions was on investing in commodities. Christian Buskin, who is Senior Vice President and Director of Real Assets at FEG, kept pushing back at me that we shouldn't invest in commodity futures. I wanted to do so, but he insisted that we were better off investing in private energy investments. Christian had only been with our firm a couple years. Now he's been there 20 years. One of the smartest analysts I know on what is going on with commodities, energy, real estate, and other real assets. At the time, Christian pointed out all of the challenges with commodity futures that we've discussed on this show, most recently in episode 382. The idea of negative roll yield, and in order to make money investing in commodity futures, commodities have to rise in price more than what investors or the consensus expects because the futures price reflects what investors think the correct price of what commodities should be. Many of our clients at the time participated directly in private energy partnerships, but our smaller clients could not. Finally, in November 2009, we added a commodity futures ETF to our discretionary portfolios. It was the Invesco DB Commodity Index Tracking Fund, DBC. At the time, in our portfolio spotlight that I would write anytime we would make a portfolio change, I pointed out that we couldn't justify adding commodities to our portfolios based on valuations because there really wasn't a true value of commodities. It was a function of supply and demand. I pointed out that commodities had fallen 57% from their peak in July 2008 to the bottom on March 2nd, 2009. Then they had rebounded about 34% from their low in November 2009, but were still 43% below the peak level. I pointed out the increasing demand for real assets such as oil and industrial metals, by China and other developing nations. And that was underpinning commodity prices. And we felt that demand trend would continue. But recognize that that demand could be met by rising supply. We also added commodity futures as a way to protect or hedge against unexpected inflation, which is the environment that commodity futures do the best. When inflation 
is higher than what everyone expected. And that's the environment we're in today, which is why commodity futures have done so well over the past year. We added that investment in DBC in November 2009, and I left FEG in April 2012. Over that time, DBC returned 8.1% annualized, outperforming the global stock market. It worked out. But I've been out of commodity futures ever since. I continue to have exposure to energy and other real assets through my investments in the private capital fund of funds that FEG still runs. Commodities go through extensive periods of positive returns, bull markets, and negative returns or flat returns, bear markets. There was a commodity bear market from 1951 to 1968. It lasted 18 years. On average, commodities fell 2.3% per year. Then there was a bull market from 1968 to 1981. That lasted 13 years, and commodities returned about 14% per year. From 1981 to 1999, there was another bear market 18 years long. Average annual return of negative 3%. Then the bull market started in 1999 the one where I was insistent that we invest in commodity futures. But it took us 10 years to do so, and rightly so. We needed that ongoing debate. But from 1999 to 2011, that 12-year bull market, commodities returned 11.5%. Now, we've been in a commodity bear market since 2011. Commodities have returned only 0.9%. If we exclude the previous year and a half, the two years, commodities would be negative. These long-term trends for commodities are called super cycles. They are driven by supply and demand. When demand increases for commodities, it can take years for supply of mining and drilling capacity to ramp up to meet that demand. Take the coal industry, for example. Ben Nelson VP of Moody's said the coal industry cannot respond quickly enough to improved market conditions. Most coal is sold on long-term contracts. So when there's a big spike of demand, coal producers just can't turn up production like they used to be able to because they've cut back capacity so much. The last commodities bull market from 1999 to 2011 was driven by demand from China. China was building out massive infrastructure projects and manufacturing capacity on its way to become a major global exporter. China's exports comprised 3% of total world trade in 1999. By 2020, it was 17%. Now it's fallen back to 16%, but that's huge. In 2011, China consumed 53% of the world's cement, 47% of its coal, 45% of its steel, That commodity bull market that ended in 2011 ended because eventually supply caught up to where there was too much supply. And then China switched to focus more on consumer-led growth rather than purely on infrastructure and manufacturing projects. For the next couple years after 2011, there continued to be major investments in supply. For example, total global spending on oil exploration and production Capacity went from $250 billion per year in 2000 to $900 billion in 2014. In 2004, there were about six or seven private equity energy funds that had collectively about $10 billion to invest. By 2015, there were over 60 
private equity energy funds with $100 billion to invest. With all of that investment and capacity combined with moderating demand, returns suffered. If we look at the S&P Oil and Gas Exploration and Production ETF, from December 31st, 2008 to year-end 2018, it had a zero return. There was a shareholder revolt in the energy space. Big oil and gas companies started focusing more on returning capital, more dividends, share buybacks. They were much more strict about investing in economically viable projects. As a result, we've seen oil and gas spending in exploration and production fall 57% since 2014. In 2020, we had the pandemic. The overcapacity combined with less demand saw oil price futures go negative in April 2020. Now, much of the reduced investment in the commodity space, oil and gas, certainly it's the energy companies and mining companies themselves. As shareholders demand more discipline, more return of capital, less investment, but there's also been more environmental, social, and governance criteria, ESG mandates. Major universities and other endowments and foundations are deciding they don't want to invest in oil and gas companies or other mining companies. There's pressure from students and board members, stakeholders, not to invest in some of these areas. And that has led to less investment. I recently listened to an Odd Lots podcast in which Jeffrey Curry, who's a global head of commodities at Goldman Sachs, was being interviewed. And he said ESG was a blunt tool because effectively we're taking away investments from a sector, energy and mining, at a time when we haven't fully transitioned to a decarbonized economy. I pointed out some of the challenges with ESG investing way back in episode 77. I said non-ESG potentially could outperform ESG investments if the non-ESG companies didn't get the investment. Investors didn't want to hold those assets. So their prices would fall and their dividends would increase. But if the underlying demand was still there for their products, oil, gas, then those companies could potentially outperform through a combination of lower valuations and higher dividends. Now, we are potentially seeing something similar in the commodity space. When I've spoken with Christian Buskin at FEG, had lunch with him, dinner, I've never seen him more bullish on private energy because of the lack of investment in this area. A number of private equity energy firms are underwriting projects with very high expected returns. Now we've had a huge supply shock with Russia invading Ukraine and the sanctions that have been placed on Russia. If we look at one commodity, natural gas, natural gas is very much a, a local commodity. It's difficult to, to ship natural gas. It has to be liquefied. The natural gas is cooled to negative 260 degree Fahrenheit. That does compress it, but it can be shipped but it's not easy to do. I was shocked when I saw the price of natural gas futures in Europe versus the U.S. Right now, natural gas futures in the U.S. is about $7 per million BTUs. In Europe, it's $42 per million BTU. 
Back in May 2020, natural gas futures in Europe were priced at $1.57 per million BTU. Can you imagine that? Having to pay 20 times more for natural gas than you did a couple years ago? We've seen gasoline prices double since early 2020. But imagine 20 times more. That's a supply shock because Europe got so much of their natural gas from Russia. It's an example of how it's not easy to adjust to supply and demand imbalances because it takes time to bring on more supply. And Europe is struggling to find alternative sources of natural gas and oil. And because of that, we've seen a huge spike in commodity prices. Jeffrey Curry of Goldman Sachs in the interview pointed out that in many regards, it's cheaper to move a manufacturing plant to where natural gas and other utilities is cheaper than it is to ship liquefied natural gas to the manufacturing plant and try to run it that way. It will be interesting to see how this evolves, but that has been a huge supply shock that has driven up commodity prices of late. When we think about this commodity bear market, whether it's still in existence that started in 2011, or we're in a new bull market that started in early 2020, it's hard to say. If we look at the returns of DBC, the Deutsche Bank Commodity Tracking Index, it's returned negative 1% annualized since April 2011, even though DBC has returned 56% annualized since May 2020. That is the challenge with figuring out whether a particular asset is in a secular bull market or secular bear market. Sometimes you don't know, particularly with commodities where there is an evaluation. We've been in a secular bull market for stocks since March 2009 because we could see inexpensive valuations coming out of the great financial crisis and We've continued to be in a bull market despite the sell-off in 2020, the, the short couple months sell-off during that recession. But commodities are more challenging. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N. A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. 
But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Did a new super cycle begin in May 2020? If we are, it's different from other commodities bull markets. The previous bull market, as I mentioned, was driven by massive demand from China. China had this huge appetite for oil and industrial metals, and there wasn't sufficient supply. And it took a decade to build up that supply to where there was overcapacity, and then commodity prices fell. In this case, if there is a new commodity supercycle, it will be driven by constrained supply in the face of uncertain demand as the global economy continues on an energy transition away from carbon sources. There's been a lack of investment due to shareholder demand and ESG mandates. At the same time, there is demand for commodities as part of decarbonization. I was recently visiting with one of our neighbors who works for a mining company. His company owns a copper mine in Brazil. He says demand is huge because of electric vehicle production. There's a chart that Christian shared with me from Stratagas, where they did an analysis. If 30% of motor vehicle production was electric vehicles, that's about 18 million vehicles. They went through different metals to see how much producing those 18 million vehicles would take of the production of those particular metals in 2019. For example, graphite. It would take about a million tons of graphite to produce 18 mil million electric vehicles. That's about 84% of the current graphite production. Lithium. If we had 18 million EVs produced, that would take 150% of the current production levels or the production levels in 2019 of lithium. Cobalt, 18 million EVs would take up about 50% of cobalt production. Now, copper would take 1.6 million tons of copper. That's only about 8% of copper production. But the point is, it will take industrial metals as transportation moves over to more electric vehicles. What we don't know is how, how quickly that transition will occur. The International Energy Agency estimates that $80 trillion will be invested over the next 20 years in decarbonization strategies within the global economy. And decarbonization is happening. A letter from Natural Gas Partners points out that the U.S. is the largest global producer of oil and the largest producer of natural gas. In the meantime, the U.S. has been going through an, an energy transition. Coal has gone from 50% of 
of electricity generation to 23% over the past 15 years. And with more renewables, such as solar and wind, as well as domestically produced natural gas, U.S. CO2 emissions have fallen 24% since 2007. That's the largest reduction of carbon emissions of any country in the world. We're seeing that trend around the world. Yet, despite this reduction in carbon emissions, Natural Gas Partners estimates that the world will still need 600 billion barrels of oil and 3.1 trillion cubic feet of natural gas between now and 2050. One of the big unknowns that potentially underpins a commodity supercycle is demand from developing countries. Because developed countries, their demand for oil has peaked. Developing countries continue to have increases in fossil fuels and industrial metals. One of the proposed solutions is a carbon tax, but a carbon tax would disproportionately hurt developing countries, families that are poor because they're so dependent on fossil fuels for heating, and it would have a larger impact percentage-wise on their income. Now, not everybody is bullish on commodities. Capital economics, one of the economic services that I subscribe to, is actually forecasting a drop in oil and other commodity prices through 2023. They don't believe we're in a commodity super cycle because they believe slowing demand from China will more than offset the demand arising from the energy transition the demand for industrial metals as electric vehicle production ramps up even more. That's the challenge with super cycles. We, we never really know. Jeffrey Curry, head of commodities at Goldman Sachs, believes we are in a super cycle. Differing opinions. It all comes down to how much supply versus the underlying demand. If you believe there is a commodity super cycle and want to participate in it, one way is to invest in the Invesco DB Commodity Tracking Index Fund. That's how Jeffrey Curry of Goldman Sachs suggests investing, not in that particular ETF, but his view is you want to get as, as close to the commodity as possible. So investing in commodity futures. That particular ETF, DBC, has $4.4 billion in assets, an expense ratio of 0.85%. It's primarily invested in energy but also has exposure to agriculture and industrial metals. Another way to invest, and one that I tend to favor a little more over commodity futures, is the Horizon Kinetics Inflation Beneficiaries ETF. The ticker is INFL. We profiled this ETF about a year ago on one of our Money for the Rest of Us Plus episodes for members of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. The manager, Horizon Kinetics, has been around since the mid-1990s. They're a value-oriented contrarian manager with about $5 billion in assets under management, 70 employees. Their founders have over 30 years of experience, and they've built an ETF of stocks, of companies that they believe are profitable, well-managed, and don't need inflation to be successful, but would benefit from higher inflation. They have a meaningful allocation to royalty trusts which are companies that own land but have minimal rights. And so they receive income from the production of oil and natural gas, even though they're not producing it themselves. The ETF also has exposure to precious metal miners. The ETF has $1.4 in assets, 0.85% expense ratio. 
If we compare this ETF, which owns stocks that benefit from inflation, to commodities itself, it's not done as well recently. This particular ETF, INFL, is up 3.5% year-to-date, compared to 30% positive return year-to-date for DBC. Over the past year, INFL has returned 13.5% compared to 55% one-year return for DBC. Another option is the FlexShares Morningstar Global Upstream Natural Resources Index Fund. Ticker is G-U-N-R. This is a big fund, about $8 billion, a 0.45% expense ratio. It's invested in producers of commodities, about 31% in agriculture firms, 30% in metals, about 30% in energy. It's globally diversified with only 35% in the U.S. Another way to invest is what I talked about last year in episode 351 on how to profit from carbon investing. It's the Crane Shares Global Carbon ETF. KRBN is the ticker. $1.4 billion in assets, 0.78% expense ratio. This ETF is investing in carbon futures that are part of cap-and-trade systems, where governments set caps on the amount of carbon that can be emitted by certain industries. And these participants trade these carbon emission allowances. And there's also an active future market where buying and selling takes place, and it puts a price on carbon. When I released this episode, the price of carbon allowances was 54 euros. Now, the December 22 contract has it priced at 80 euros. At the end of 2020, it was about 23 euros. So you're seeing this futures price go up. I was actually surprised how high it was given what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. There's an investment guide on the Money for the Rest of Us website that goes into much more detail on carbon investing as well as episode 351. This particular ETF, KRBN, has has fallen about 6% year-to-date, but is still up 53% in the past year. A final way, then, to to invest is to invest in probably the, the most risky way is venture capital investments of companies that are participating in the energy transition or potentially in this commodity space. Our crowd is a platform. They sponsor our podcast. And there you can find funds as well as individual companies, startups, that are participating in this area, recognizing that any particular startup, there's a high risk that you'll lose most, if not all, your money. And so you need to diversify among many different startups in this particular area. But this is another way to participate. Most of my participation is via private investments, not on our crowd, but through these institutional funds through my former firms, which unfortunately is just not available to retail investors. So in conclusion then, if we're in a commodities bull market super cycle, it's going to be driven by constrained supply due to ESG mandates, due to shareholders demanding more discipline from energy and mining companies. It could be constrained supply due to carbon emission allowances and other areas. It it could be driven by some demand from electrification of the transportation networks and the impact on industrial metals. And all of that reduced supply is offset by demand. And how much demand will we get from developing countries, recognizing that demand from developed countries, particularly in the oil and gas space, has peaked, and then China is this big unknown. 
how big of impact will demand from China, either slowing demand or reduced demand, have on commodities? We just don't know. So when you invest, invest a small amount of capital on a percentage basis because of all the unknowns, and that's typically less than 10% of your portfolio. That's our look at commodity super cycles. Thanks for listening. This is episode 384. I'd like to help you become a better investor. Certainly the free podcast helps with that, but have you subscribed to my email newsletter, The Insider's Guide? It's where each week I share an essay on money, investing, and the economy to a list of thousands of email subscribers. I put a great deal of thought and time into that newsletter, and I would love for you to be able to read it and learn from it. You can sign up for the Insider's Guide newsletter at moneyfortherestofus.com. Another way I would love to help you become a better investor is by you becoming a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. This is the premier investment education platform that's been operating for over seven years. Plus membership gives you the tools and resources you need to manage your investment portfolio. Not only do you get access to my more than two decades of investment experience, look at my portfolio trades, but Money for the Rest of Us Plus has partnered with top-tier institutional research firms such as Ned Davis Research, Capital Economics, MSEI, and Refinitiv Data Stream. I curate the most important content and lessons to help you make better portfolio decisions. You also access a community of over a thousand members to get their insights. Money for the Rest of Us Plus is a bargain compared to a college credit or subscribing to an institutional research service that can cost upwards of $10,000 per year or even hiring a financial advisor. You can learn more about Plus membership at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.